Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of 28 Days Ladier. I am your host, Sophie, and we are at the very end of October, which means that our very, very beloved and much-missed co-host, Hannah, is back. How are you doing, Hannah? Um, I'm alive. (laughs) (laughs) She has resurfaced from her... Uh, working and field placement and grad school life to come talk to us about a movie, and we are very happy that she's back. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We are also joined... That's uh, that's all I've been doing. I've got nothing else to report. (laughs) (laughs) We're also joined by returning very special guest and horror godfather, Reed. Reed, we're so happy to have you back. How are you? I'm doing great, and I'm happy to be back. Thank you. Ugh. So I really, I genuinely can't contain myself. Uh, if you're listening to this the day it releases, it is Halloween, which, as a horror fan, is maybe the best day of the entire year. Woo. And there's no other movie that we could talk about except John Carpenter's Halloween. Uh, one of my favorite, uh, I'll speak for all of us, probably a favorite for all three of us as far as horror films go. Does that feel fair? Very. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So I think we're going to have a lot of fun and I think we have a shit ton to get into. So we're just going to jump right into Halloween um, without very much fanfare up top. I do want to say if you're listening to this and somehow you haven't seen Halloween, um, I'm not even going to shame you because I I really want to call you in rather than calling you out. But we're going to spoil everything about this movie. So if you haven't seen the original Halloween um, from 1978 by John Carpenter, please go watch it. Please go watch it now and then come listen to us because I think you'll enjoy this conversation a lot more if you've already seen the movie. Um. Oh my gosh. So let's get into it. Reed, uh, I didn't prep you for this ahead of time, but since you are our special guest and I think that you are very much up for the task, can you give us like a brief synopsis of John Carpenter's Halloween? Absolutely. All right. In 1963, in the quiet town of Haddonfield, young Judith Myers is brutally stabbed to death by her six-year-old brother. No motive, no explanation, but he's sent away for 15 years at an insane asylum. Then in present day, that being 78, uh, Michael Myers escapes from the sanitarium, returns to his hometown of Haddonfield, and on Halloween night becomes fixated on young high schooler Laurie Strode as she settles in for what she thinks is going to be a quiet night of babysitting, but Michael Myers has other ideas. Oh my gosh. Reed, that was... Hands down, one of the, not even one of the, the most engaging and competent synopses we've ever had on this show. Thank you. Uh, I was practicing all day. That was beautiful. I I already struggle with that part of the podcast. And after that, I'm like, I I can never do it again. It just always needs to be read. (laughs) (laughs) It does help when it's a movie that you've seen. Like, I imagine that read you've probably, I feel like I've seen this movie a million times and you've seen it way more than me. So. Yeah, probably at least a million and one. Yeah, exactly. So um, so the reason that we wanted to have Reed on for this especially uh, auspicious episode, this is our 40th episode. And as I told Hannah and Reed before we started recording, I know that 50 is really like a more uh, technically exciting uh, number. 
the fact that we're reaching our 40th episode on Halloween just feels very appropriate. And Reed pointed out that it is 2020 and 20 plus 20 is 40. So here we are. Um, the reason that we had to have Reed on for this episode is that Halloween is the movie that for me started my horror fandom. Now, it did not start immediately when I first watched Halloween when Reed and I were in eighth grade. It scared the ever-loving shit out of me, and I never wanted to see it or talk about it ever again. Um, But, you know, like, because I came to horror late, so many people my age that are horror fans talk about like loving scary stuff when they were kids. And as I've gotten older, I realized that I was also into spooky stuff when I was younger. Like I loved, uh, although I also hated, I had like a very love hate relationship with like, are you afraid of the dark and goosebumps and Hannah and I loved so weird on the Disney channel. Like we loved stuff that creeped us out. But Halloween, I think was the first time that I saw a horror movie and it scared me, but like I wanted to know more about it. And as I have be- as I've grown in my horror fandom, this movie has very much been a huge part of that transformation. And Reed is the reason I saw this. Reed, if I remember correctly, brought this to the Halloween party where we watched it or like at the very least picked it out. Was this at Kelly's party? Yes, this is at a yeah, Kelly's Kelly's 8th grade Halloween party. Oh, no, that was ninth grade and I only remember that because I was Neo from the matrix and that was uh yeah that was when we were freshmen oh my gosh okay that is was there making out at this party no we were not we were not cool <laughs> uh no we weren't i didn't see anyone make out at a party until after i graduated high school <laughs> um fair enough you know so so there's that So um, let's take, I want to start with everyone sort of like giving a brief explainer. Obviously, I jumped the gun and went early as far as like what Halloween has meant to me as a horror fan. Um, Reed, why don't you tell me about the first time you saw Halloween and sort of like what this movie has meant to you over the years? Okay, I can actually, I can remember it so vividly, especially because I've been thinking about a lot in preparation for this podcast. So I first... I was first introduced to the world of Halloween, not from the first one, actually. It was I saw the fourth one first, and then the fifth oh, wow. one. wow. Okay. Uh, this was October 2002, so we had just moved to Delaware, and you and I had just met. And it was back when AMC would do Monster Fest every October. Uh, I think they call it Fear Fest now. I'm not sure if they're still even doing it, but it was Monster Fest. And it was a Saturday night, and I was home alone watching TV, because of, that's what I would do it on a Saturday night. And... I remember it was towards the end of Halloween 4, because they were all in a pickup truck, and then Michael Myers was on the roof stabbing them, whatever. And uh, the older sister character, whose name I'm blanking on, I remember she mentioned something about, like, Michael Myers is coming back to Haddonfield, and we had moved to Delaware from Haddonfield, New Jersey, so I got really excited. I was like, wait, 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 Haddonfield? Mm-hmm. We're from Haddonfield. And shortly after, shortly after that same night, uh, my mom came home from work. She was a flight attendant, so she would get home at crazy hours. And I was so excited. I was like, Mom, Mom, I'm watching this scary movie. And they talked about Haddonfield. And she just goes, yeah, it's Halloween. And she oh, that's t- so cool. <laughs> she had told me how, like, when she was younger and, and Halloween came out, like, she and her friends went and saw it and were so scared. They were terrified to walk home in the, in the dark because it, it freaked them out so much. 
But so for oh, for quite a while, I had only ever seen like four and five because that's all that would play on TV. They would never show the first one. So I don't think I saw the first one for like another six months or so. Wow. But I had loved it already because I just felt like, oh, Haddonfield, personal connection. And then when I finally actually saw the original movie, I just really enjoyed it. Like it was, it was so, it was a perfect thing to scare a young adult. And it's so, it's so simplistic, but effective. And I just, I, I love telling people the Hadden, the Hall, the Haddonfield story more than anything. So, Halloween has been a big part of me because, mainly because of Haddonfield. Yeah, I always associate it with you because of that. Like obviously. For folks who have watched the movie Halloween set in Haddonfield, Illinois, which is a fake town. Um, but Deborah Hill picked the name Haddonfield because she had grown up in Haddonfield, New Jersey. So that's that is like the most rad connection. Well, and um, I love the idea that in that story, it's like that um, Halloween is like a like the fact that your mom was like, oh, right. Like, of course, you're talking yeah. about Halloween. And just like it's like a generation to generation like scares that get passed down that everybody sees as like one of their first horror films that really affects them. Mhm. Now, Hannah, I actually don't know the answer to this. What when is the first time that you saw Halloween and what is your relationship with it? Okay, so mine is kind of um embarrassing. I can't um, wait. But basically, I had seen like bits and pieces of it when I was like in middle school. Um, and then Sophie was seeing it around that same time and it scared her so much. And then she like told me everything that happened in the movie and how scary it was that like, I felt like I had seen it. So I didn't actually watch it until like, probably like five or six years ago. Oh, wow. Okay. Like I, I knew, I, I knew like it was very weird the way that I like came came to it because it was kind of like I had seen clips of it. I heard the whole entire retelling from Sophie. Um, and then I had like seen all the kills on like various like YouTube like listicles and things like that. Um, so it was really weird. Like I felt like I had seen it. And then one time I was just kind of like, I guess I haven't actually like seen this like whole movie in its entirety it's more like this like pop culture thing that I just feel like I know it um so then I went like a couple years ago around Halloween to really watch it for the first time um and was like just like oh this is the best why haven't I been watching this every year at Halloween (laughs) I I did not know that you had seen it for the first time so recently. I think, to your point, not only are so many of the kills going to show up in listicles, but also this movie leaves its fingerprints all over so many things that came after it that I imagine by the time you see it, it's like, oh, so many of these things are familiar to me from things that came after it. Yeah, exactly. And, like, not for nothing, it's like one of your favorite movies and you would talk about it so much. And so like in, in such depth that I was like, yeah, I've seen that <laughs> <laughs> really quick. Did you, when you saw this movie for the first time, had you already seen it follows or did you see it follows after this? 
Um, I think I had seen this before it follows. I saw okay. this back when I was in college. Okay, I was going to say it'd be really fascinating because it follows takes so much from this movie. It would be fascinating to see them in reverse and see it follows first. Yeah, no, I think I definitely watched this. Um, my first senior year in college, I think. <laughs> Which would have been like six years ago. Yeah. Um, well, okay, so let's get into it. So we've all um, rewatched Halloween so that we can talk about it now, even though I'm sure that uh, we all probably know it backwards and forwards at this point. Um, I want to start by talking about just the cold open of this movie, which is like, I feel like using the word iconic, you could use it for basically every shot or character or kill in this movie. So I'm going to try not to use that word, but like the the opening of this film that is just this this beautiful series of takes kind of cut together to look like a very long take. Um, this this opening is amazing. Like, what does this opening do for you guys? Especially when you've already seen the movie and you know what's coming. Like, watching from Michael's POV as he enters the house. Like, what is that like to watch it now? Still just as effective as the first 50 times I've seen it. Like, even though, like you said, I know what's going to happen. I I'll, I'll always know what's going to happen, but it never fails to just sort of get me in the mood because it's, for the most part, the opening is so quiet because, like, you hear kids in the background because it's Halloween night and it's just Michael's point of view. And as he's looking in the window, you can hear the muffled voices of his sister and his sister's boyfriend, but it's so, it, like, it's so quiet. It just makes you hush up and lean in. That's a beautiful way to describe that opening, that it just, like, it really pulls you in. I mean, so many of the slashers that would come after this have um, opening sequences and cold opens where we get to see, uh, especially like, a, a, I feel like we see a lot of especially gratuitous uh, death sequences in the opening. And I sort of love that, of course, this scene does end with a kill, which we can talk about in a minute. But like, there is so much hush around the lead up to that, that you really just like have to get quiet and focus on the screen and because you're getting quiet and focusing I think it pulls you into the POV even more like you really have to sit in the killer's POV because you just have you're just like so intent to focus through those eye holes yeah I agree with you I think like as soon as the mask goes on and the and we're just like yeah peeking through the little eye holes like I, I feel like that's when you've first are like clenching your fist like <laughs> mm-hmm. um and then I just always 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 love and I always wish that I could have experienced it without knowing before I watched it but like the uh, the reveal of it being a child mm-hmm. um is like amazing it's amazingly done but then I also just imagine like for people seeing that for the first time like how crazy that would be right because the kill is so brutal like yeah the the sound of excuse me the sound effects of the kill um are turned way up in the mix squishing yeah especially in this viewing it was like very reminiscent to me of the sound effects in psycho 
um, when Janet Lee is getting killed, um, where it's just like the sound of like, it's just like, it is both forceful and squishy in a way that is really grotesque. <clears throat> and then to like cut to forceful that and being squishy just a is child. the name of my sex tape. Sorry. Oh my, oh my God. <laughs> um, Oh my gosh. Well, not to not to jump too far forward, but one thing that jumped out to me, especially because our very own Hannah is currently getting her master's in social work, um, is when, when we cut when we jump forward in time and Dr. Loomis and the nurse are going to get Michael to transport him to a different facility. And she says, The only thing that bothers me is their gibberish. I hate when they start raving on and on. And it's just like such a uh, so much of this movie to me is like not dated. Um, a lot of this film, as far as like the writing of the characters is so well plotted and thought out that it feels pretty timeless, but there's something really, really dated about this woman who's in a caring profession being like, "Ugh, I hate it when people with mental illness just start raving. It's really creepy and annoying. You're very cuckoo's nest of her. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and that 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 he that uh, she's like, I've seen it all. Like I can handle anything, and and then at the same time is like, oh, but you know what I hate. <laughs> yeah, and then like she, it turns out she can't at all. She immediately is like, actually, I can't handle it all because. Oh my I god! Am. Well, and I also just love like when I was watching it too, like, um, when, whenever, uh, like, is it. Dr. Dr. Loomis? Mm-hmm. Yes, Dr. Sam Loomis. Okay, so whenever Dr. Loomis is like... I also just love that in the beginning, he's so intense with everyone he talks to. When she's like, oh yeah, I can handle anything. He's like, no, seriously. <laughs> and then no, like this, later on... This boy on, is evil. Yes, and like like later on... It's just like everyone he interacts with in the first like half an hour is like, ah, it'll... It, like he can't get far and... Like, Dr. Loomis is always like, you're wrong. Like, everyone's <laughs> going to die. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Loomis is such a great character. And I, I love in the beginning, it like in that opening scene you're talking about, Hannah, where Dr. Loomis refers to Michael as an it. Mm-hmm. And the nurse says, I think we can refer to him as him. And Dr. Loomis is like, if you say so. I mean, he's so certain from the beginning that this is and a sort of like inhuman or otherworldly force that they're dealing with. And no one believes him. Um, I'm going to make several references during this episode to the um, 40th anniversary commemorative uh, Halloween magazine that birth movies death put out in 2018. And before I make any references to it, I do want to note that like, obviously birth movies death is associated with Alamo and was associated with Cinestate, which are both organizations that have had lots and lots and lots of very credible reports of um, sexual abuse and just like sexual assault and just also treating their staff poorly. So please take with a grain of salt that like Birth Movies Death is a complicated organization, but this magazine like brought me a lot of joy as a Halloween fan. Um, oh, Alamo, really? That's too bad. I didn't. I didn't, actually hadn't heard that. That's disappointing. Oh yeah. So I hate. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but yet yeah, Alamo has like a a rough reputation of sort of. Um, Wait, do you mean like, like Alamo Draft House? Yeah. Oh. 
Oh, man, I'm going to be like now breaking the news to our audience. I'll do like the very short version, which is that as a overall organization, I think Alamo has a reputation of um, ignoring complaints from staff of situations that make them feel unsafe. Like very famously at the original location, there was a story about this male customer who like frequently made female staff feel very uncomfortable because he would be really aggressive and inappropriate with them. And the theater kind of like management refused to do anything about it because like he was there a lot and they were sort of like, he's a customer. You just have to like ignore him. Um, and we have an Alamo draft house here in Kansas City and the local um, independent like monthly magazine put out an article last year sort of about the like very uh sort of like honestly inhumane conditions that staff are put through. Like at the Alamo and KC, it's a two-story movie theater and there's like escalators for patrons. But if you're staff, you have to go up and down, basically like a emergency exit staircase. Um, and so it's like people are walking like up and down these staircases with like huge trays of food. And they interviewed a woman who was like, yeah, I used to work at Alamo. And then I like, broke my foot and they didn't let me take any shifts off and still scheduled me to like run food up and down these stairs when I was like in a boot, just like unfortunate. So putting that at the top, both organizations kind of complicated. Cinestate, especially like birth movies, death has since cut ties entirely with Cinestate. Um, But anyway, I did want to talk about the fact that like they have this really beautiful article in the magazine sort of talking about they talk about um donald pleasance and his performance as sam loomis and sort of like point out that sam loomis really sets halloween apart from the other big slasher franchises uh friday the 13th and nightmare on elm street where like especially as long as donald pleasance was alive halloween had a character that was on equal uh, playing ground with Michael, who was like an equal adversary who was really dedicated to defeating him and sort of like compared him to Ahab in Moby Dick, which I thought was a really lovely comparison. Oh, that is good. Um, his performance is just absolutely stellar. Donald Pleasance is good in every movie. Like even when the scripts get terrible, like he brings his all to every role, even when the material he's given is not very good. <laughs> professional yeah he's a true professional that's a perfect way to put it um let's talk a little bit about michael you know he obviously is the shape at the center of the halloween franchise um and is a really iconic slasher i don't know if this is true for you guys um halloween is my favorite of the slasher series and michael is sort of the horror villain that is like the most iconic and instills the most dread in me in a way that like other um, slasher killers do not. Um, And I just find him to be such an effective and scary character. I think in large part because of the work that Deborah Hill and John Carpenter um, did to like create what he looks like and how he interacts with the people in the film. Um, I not to be a buzzkill, but I think my favorite is, um, I mean, I don't know if I'm confident enough to, like, truly declare, but I think my favorite is Freddy Krueger. Um, so I agree with you. It's all amazing. Um, but <laughs> Here's what I want to know. Question, Does Freddy scare you? 
Um, because like I love Freddy for his quips, but I'm not scared of him. But like Freddy scares me in the or scared me in the first one, like in the first Nightmare on Elm Street. Mm -hmm. And like Michael Myers doesn't really scare me anymore. Ah, see, I never grew out of it. (laughs) (laughs) What about for you, Reed? Uh, definitely Michael Myers is definitely my favorite. He is king. (laughs) <laughs> and you, uh, you, you put it really well with it. He fills me with dread more than anything else because uh, Halloween is my favorite slasher franchise, but I've got a really fond spot for Friday the 13th, even though it's campy and the first four movies are the exact, exactly the same. So I love Jason, but that's more like that's that's a sort of love of like, oh, my God, he's right behind me. I got to run faster. But Michael mm-hmm. fills you with dread because he wa- he never runs. He'll just walk and he'll always catch up. Yeah. Like, he's just a presence. He's just always looming over, pun intended for Sam Loomis, looming over you. Like, you you can't outrun him. Well, I mean, you can, but he's going to get you. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I, totally, I totally feel like one of the things about Michael Myers that is so scary, and I think I've told this story on the podcast, like, my fear of Michael Myers is so deeply ingrained in my psyche now that... A couple of years ago, my partner and I went to a haunted house that was all, every different room was themed after classic horror films. And it didn't occur to me until we were waiting in line that there might be a Halloween room. And when there was a Halloween room, I almost, like, I wanted to find an emergency exit. My partner was like, no, we have to walk, we just have to go through it. And I was like, I can't. And I was so scared. And when the guy dressed as Michael stepped into the doorway, like he stepped into a darkened doorway, much like in this film, my immediate response was to shove my partner into Michael Myers, like just full body sacrifice the man I love by shoving him into Michael Myers. So, like, and I'm not good at haunted houses anyway. Like I get scared, but that's never a response I've had any other time. Like, such a fight or flight, like, I have to go right now response. Um, So I think there's something really scary about the fact that obviously the film itself compares Michael to fate, right? Like we have this classroom scene where the teacher talks about fate being immovable um, and unchangeable, which is sort of like how we see Michael throughout this film. I wanted to um, read a couple of quotes to you guys from the birth movies, death um, magazine and see what your thoughts were. So one of the articles is called the terror of cinema's unstoppable killing machine by uh, Jim Braden. And he says, though some classic characters in this vein, Jason Voorhees being a prime example are slow, unstoppable killers. Their motives are also personal, but imbuing these monsters with even the slightest personality, the filmmakers perhaps unintentionally suggest that they could be sorted through psychological, I'm sorry, they could be sorted through psychological manipulation or misdirection, which I like, right? Like for me, part of what makes Michael so scary is that we don't know why he is so dead set on this mission that he's on. Yeah, and they don't ever really get into it either. Like, I mean, they try in the sequels. They're like, Lori was his sister, and also there's runes, but like, we don't. For the purposes <laughs> the of this of conversation, yeah, for this purposes of this conversation, those things don't matter. In this um, movie, also, we we're never not going to talk about the incest baby from Six. <laughs> I did also watch this like with 
my friend and um in the part at the beginning when he's like watching the little boy that Lori is later babysitting mm-hmm. and that little boy gets is getting bullied and Michael like bumps into one of the bullies um my friend was like oh so is he like an anti-hero like does he have like a an anti-bullying thing and I was like no oh. I mean Rob Zombie sure saw the scene and really tried to base his whole entire interpretation of <laughs> these films off of that, but nope. <laughs> I actually just had a conversation with a client of mine who does like the Rob Zombie Halloween films, and, like, I'm very on the record with everyone that knows me that, like, I fucking hate those movies. And um, he appreciated that they gave Michael a backstory, but I was like, no, it really does feel like Michael is so much scarier when you don't know why this is what he's doing, right? Like we see in movies like, um, I'm sorry, Friday the 13th 2 or Freddy versus Jason, that like Mike, uh, Jason can be manipulated by people that sort of understand his motivation. He's a mama's boy. Yeah, exactly. Like if you can just like tap into his love for his mom, you can sort of, uh, evade him and there aren't as direct examples of that with Freddie but Freddie's the same way where we kind of know where he's coming from and so people are able to use that to try to capture him or escape him or get away from him and there just isn't anything like that for Michael there's no there aren't sequences where people think of like clever tricks to try to uh, thwart him he's just like the professor said the teacher says he is this immovable force that's just going to keep coming for you yeah although i do like some of the halloween sequels like i i like seeing halloween halloween 2 and h2o as like the laurie strode trilogy even though i'm fine i'm okay with the familial connection they established watching watching it just this uh last night before this I went into it trying to think in the mindset of, like, no relation, nothing at all. This is a total standalone movie. Mm-hmm. And it de- it definitely takes a different feel not thinking about what they retconned in the future. Right. Definitely. Definitely. And, I mean, um, in that same article about, like, unstoppable killing machines, they talk about It Follows, which obviously um, is very influenced by Halloween. And the the It, the follower in that film in some ways is very influenced by Michael, right? It's this, it is this unstoppable, unflappable thing that is never going to run, but it doesn't really need to sleep or do anything else. It's just going to keep following you. And they have a quote from David Robert Mitchell, who directed, wrote and directed It Follows. And he said, if you were in a nightmare, there would be no logical step to be able to explain it. It just is, which is such a good way for me anyway, to explain like why Michael is so scary, because like if this was a bad dream you had, like where there's just a man following you and trying to hurt you and you don't know why, that's so much scarier than feeling like there's a reason for the madness. That is a good point, too. Like, I never thought of it that way of how if it how in a nightmare there wouldn't you don't need there to be any, any explanation if the like the evil force is like always catching up to you even if you're running and it's not uh-huh. <laughs> right right and michael came from such a picturesque like normal upbringing like he had t- 
two parents. He had a sibling. Like there was in this quiet little suburb, there's nothing, there's no reason why he should have snapped. Right, exactly. And I mean, that's one of the things that I love so much about this movie is that like John Carpenter takes this idea of evil, right? And sort of puts it in a body that looks like a normal human body and then drops it in the middle of the suburbs and just kind of backs away. He's sort of like, you thought you were safe there, but you aren't. Which is like such a great, such a great, I mean, and other folks obviously did similar work afterwards and and the idea that like, your home is not sacred, your neighborhood is not sacred. People did it before and did it after, but there's something about Michael Myers. I mean, especially with the end of the movie where Michael is gone and then they just start showing us the closing scenes of this movie are just st- static shots of the interior of sub- of this suburban home, but you can hear Michael breathing. Like because we don't know where he is anymore, he's everywhere now which is such a beautiful and terrifying image. <laughs> um, I want to talk to you guys a little bit about just like some of the, like let's get into some of the nitty gritty stuff within the movie. I mean, obviously I'm going to nerd out hard on some of this film, but I, there's also like fun, silly stuff I want to talk about. Um, and Hannah, you talked about the bullying scene. And I just have to note that a thought that comes to my mind every time they show Tommy getting bullied is like it has to be so painful to fall on a pumpkin mm-hmm. like pumpkins are not soft at all i never yeah, thought about that but you pumpkin smashed like it was already hollow yeah i mean they must have like cracked it so that it would break when he fell on it because i think realistically if you fell on top of a pumpkin and you were a kid maybe as an adult it would break but I think at his age, it wouldn't break. It'd be like falling on a rock. Ouch, yeah. that hurt my ribs thinking about that. I, right? That, that never occurred to me. Just cause <laughs> the, way, the way it just splats open so easily, I never actually thought about like, well, obviously they already have a semi-rotted pumpkin, but a real one would hurt like a mother. Yeah, like think about the last time you got a pumpkin to carve and then and like how heavy it is and it's so solid and dense. Exactly. Like think about falling on that with your full body weight. Oh, Even as limping. an adult, that, that sounds, sounds painful. Off. Yeah, it sounds like a real ouchie. I'm not about it. <laughs> it's a real ouchie. <laughs> um, let's talk about some of the other characters in this film, namely the three young women at the center of our film. Because I think one thing that this movie gets a lot of very deserved praise for um, is the way that Annie and Linda and Lori are written as characters. I mean, all credit for this goes to Deborah Hill, who is... Um, who was just a boss and just like was able to write these three young teen girls to feel like real and different people. Um, So I just want to get a feel from both of you on like, what are, what's your, what what do you, how do you feel about these characters and, and the way that they're sort of characterized and presented to us and what's your relationship to the three of them? Um, Please don't be mad at me, but again, you guys are bigger fans than I am. Other than Lori, which one's which with the other? Oh, two? I can help this out because when I was watching this, I was uh, taking note. I was typing up notes, just little things to bring up in case it came up in this conversation. And I wrote down here: Linda equals totally. Annie equals other one. 
Linda is PJ Souls. She's the blonde with the pigtails. Got it. And Annie is uh Nancy Loomis is the actress's name, and she is the brunette brunette with curly hair who's babysitting Lindsay. Mm-hmm. And the way that you can remember this from now on is that um, so I told Reed and Hannah before we recorded that this is actually my second time this month rewatching Halloween. And the first time I rewatched it, I rewatched it with several friends who had never seen it over Zoom and with my partner. And during the scene where Linda and her boyfriend get killed, I said to Jeremy, wouldn't it be wild because her name is Linda? Like, I would love to see someone recreate this entire scene with Linda and Bob from Bob's Burgers. And then I realized that her boyfriend's name is Bob. And I was like, (laughs) is our Linda and Bob named after this Linda and Bob? And whether or not that's true, that will be canon for me forever. (laughs) Yeah, wait, so, uh, Reed, were you saying Linda is... Uh, Linda's the one who's like, it's totally awesome. (laughs) Linda's the one who's like, I always forget my history book and my algebra book. I forget all my books. (laughs) Yeah, she's like, like, who even cares? Why do you even need books? It's totally boring. the other one. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And she does say totally a lot in that sequence. Totally. Annie's just Tom Cruise because she's running around in a white men's shirt with no pants on <laughs> okay yeah we're gonna have to get to that so uh hannah as a child care provider um you and i have both been in situations where like you spill food on yourself or you just like get something messy on you because kids are messy um have you ever been like the solution to this is i'm gonna get completely naked and put on the clothing of the father of the child like not only would i never think to do that like <laughs> The amount of, like, I have been a nanny for years. Like, the amount of times I've been, like, had, like, actual human shit and vomit on me and had to just be in that all day. Um, And on more than one occasion, gone on a date being like, yeah, sorry, I got thrown up on at work today by a baby. Um, I would never be like, oh, I'm just going to do a quick load of laundry and while I wait, I'm going to get completely naked in the kitchen uh-huh. and just, like, take it from there. <laughs> now, Reed, and- I'm realizing that I left you out of this question because you have also worked as a child care provider. So I want your perspective on this as well. You know, it, it is it is kind of strange. But when I, I just try, much like many other things in this movie, I just tell myself it was the 70s. And that that answers away like half the issues I have. Oh my gosh! Yeah, oh, yeah. I, mean, I mean, I was like, uh, first every time I watch this movie, especially when Annie is going from one house to another house, like back and forth in just a shirt and no pants, I was like, good thing for her that no one is around. <laughs> I mean, also it's Halloween, so people might think it's a costume of some kind. I guess right, that's a one night stand costume. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say this yeah, because she's risky business. That's what I was gonna say. She's too early to be risky business. But my um, friend said the exact same thing, Reed, where he was like, "It was the seventies." <laughs> yeah, and like a uh, Linda and Bob smoking in bed. Like whenever I watch any old movie, and they're smoking in bed, I just think like, "Oh God!" Just think about the ash that might fall off and it smears. But then I think it was the seventies. They did that. <laughs> and if you're I... sneaking into someone's house and being right. like. I'm so comfortable knowing that everyone in this house smokes and I'm going to smoke in their bed and not be worried about it. (laughs) 
I mean, I guess at that point, if you're going to have sex in someone else's bed, like you, you just like take any liberties you want. It was also weird to me when they were like, Lindsay's not coming home all night. Therefore, the parents are never coming home. Like that (laughs) felt like a weird stretch. It's like you could still be interrupted by the adults that own this home at any time. Yeah. Oh, speaking of weird things right around that moment, uh, this is something, something that's never sat well with me when Bob and Lin- before Bob and Linda go go into a Lindsay's house and they're like, first I'll take off my clothes, then I'll take off your clothes, then we take off Lindsay's clothes. Like, right. E- even if you're just joking, that's that makes me un- even if you're joking, that makes me uncomfortable. I was like, and it's a- why have I never noticed this before? It's like maybe the one line in the scene where you can't even be like, it was the seventies. It's you like, have to no- be like that ne- was never funny. Like that was like, never Ooh. a funny joke. I mean they and were also- drunk and driving, but still Um, I would be remiss also if I didn't, because of all this Lindsay talk, if I don't acknowledge the fact that Lindsay is played by Kyle Richards, who is, um, like the main woman on Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. One of Hannah's favorite fun facts. And isn't she coming back for, uh, the next one? She is indeed. And she got a horrible, a horribly unfortunate set of bangs. Um, like a couple months ago that she got and then everyone immediately turned on her and her bangs. And so for the whole most recent season of Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, she kept saying like, oh, I had to get bangs. I had to get my hair cut into bangs for the movie. And um, it was like, did you though? Or did you just get bangs and then realize it was a mistake? As someone who has gotten bangs and then regretted them, like, I respect her trying to find another reason for why they are on your face. I know, Uh but I also just love the idea that it would be, like, because her character as, like, a a seven-year-old had bangs, (laughs) that her as a 50-some-year-old woman also would have to have bangs. Yeah. (laughs) Um, while we're on the topic, I mean, this is jumping around a little bit, but since we were talking about Linda and Bob, I just have to acknowledge that one of the things that makes me laugh without fail every time I watch this movie is like Linda and Bob's sex pantomime just like doesn't even make sense for where people have holes in their body. (laughs) It is it like I feel as though if you took the blanket off, he would just be like trying to shove his dick into like the like above her hip into her stomach it like on the side of her body it's funny because that's where bob gets a hole shortly after (laughs) it was foreshadowing the whole time (laughs) i was about to say don't kink shame (laughs) i mean like everyone should do what they want i feel like um their sex noises are very over the top but i really appreciate it but like every time i'm watching the pantomime it just reminds me of like um, I don't know if either of you saw the remake of Flatliners. If you haven't, I wouldn't recommend it. It was very bad and not in a fun way. But there's a scene where these two characters are having sex and the sounds that this one character actress is making are such that I suggested to several people that perhaps she had never seen or had sex. <laughs> and that's kind of how I feel every time I watch Linda and Bob have sex in Halloween. It's well, like they, they they look like two people who maybe heard about what sex might look like and they're trying to imitate it under a blanket. Let's be, I mean, to be fair, they are supposed to be teenagers. And uh, <laughs> I totally buy the fact that like a teenager would be like, 
just like bumping their junk into like a a Thigh. like a, a doughy area above someone's hip and being like, oh, oh this is sex, it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god! Oh my gosh! That is but delightful. wait. So because of that, I also want to ask, like, and read too. Like, what do you guys? How do you feel about how every woman that gets like killed in this movie makes very sexual noises when she's being killed? <laughs> I'm gonna leave that silence in. Um... <laughs> Yeah, it's hard because I think when Linda does it, it's really over the top. But like plot wise, there's a very specific reason for why that is happening. And while it doesn't feel believable necessarily to me, I appreciate like the like kind of dark humor in it. First I got your famous breathing. Now I get your moaning. Yeah, exactly. Like, I appreciate that. I think with me, for me, it's, like, harder when it's Annie because it's just, like, um, it feels unnecessary. Like, when P- when PJ Souls does it as Linda, it's very performative. But, again, it's so important to, like, what we're supposed to... Like, if it was clear from the sounds she was making that she was in danger, then Lori may have reacted differently. So there's a there's a plot reason why it has to be that way. Yeah. It's much more uncomfortable, or I should say it's harder for me to, like, uh, rationalize it when it's Yeah, when it's and when it's Annie, it's like the, the, the murder of Annie, too. For whatever reason, I guess, especially since so many other of the deaths are, like, stabbings, um, the, like, the strangling from behind of Annie feels so much more, like, aggressive to me somehow. Like, I don't know why that is, but um that that death in particular always stands out to me as one that like even after having seen the movie a few times and even as an adult the idea of getting in my car and having someone strangle me (laughs) from behind Uh um is one that still actually does kind of like freak me out watching it now even now um but yeah I agree so her hers to me was also was even harder so again it's like this also kind of works for just like it was the 70s. In the 70s, they thought women made sex noises for everything. <laughs> um, exactly. I think honestly, I wonder if part of it too is that like and this is not in any way to besmirch PJ Souls cuz she's amazing. She's also in Carrie and really awesome in Carrie. But I think like we get to spend a lot more time with Annie. I feel a lot more uh emotionally connected to Annie than to Linda, and Annie feels a lot more like she's very snarky and no bullshit. Whereas like, I don't want to sound this is, this is going to sound how it sounds like Linda strikes me as someone who might sound like she's making sex noises when she dies. Does that make sense? <laughs> like based on her character, that doesn't feel that surprising. It oh, feels totally. so much more out of character with Annie. Totally. <laughs> Reed, that's so good. <laughs> Oh, my God. Oh, my gosh. Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but maybe Annie's seems more brutal because she had a split second to realize something was wrong because, like, she gets in the car and it's already fogged up. Yeah. Yeah. And it's already unlocked. Like, it was locked and then it was unlocked. And you're like, Annie, please notice that the car is unlocked now. So she had that split second to realize, like, something is off here. And then... 
too bad she didn't hear the music stinger because that would have warned her too. But then Michael oh. pops up and yeah. grabs her. Whereas <laughs> Linda is just like totally, totally, totally. <laughs> Linda, on the other hand, is like, "Hey, Michael, look at my tits. Yeah. Where's my beer?" <laughs> and it's actually really funny because when I watched this with people who had never seen it before. Um, I think they didn't really notice. So when Bob and Linda's sex scene ends, they're both laying in bed and PJ Soul's chest is exposed. And you can, you like briefly see her breasts just sort of like while they're casually laying in bed. It's not like super voyeuristic. It's just sort of like they have just finished having sex and they're laying in bed. But then the scene when Michael comes upstairs dressed as the ghost with Bob's glasses on and PJ Soul's drops the sheet they're like, oh, of course, They're it's a right, slasher movie. We have right to show there. boob. But I was like, it's interesting because actually if you watch it, like most of that shot is framed in such a way that you can't see her exposed nipple. You can just tell that she's flashing her boobs. Like you don't really see her boobs. There, It's just implied that they're there for most of that shot, which I think is interesting. Like I think Halloween is a movie that people remember as being like much bloodier and much more explicit like sex and nudity wise than it actually is because of the slashers that came after it. That is a very good point because I feel like every time I watch it, I end up being like, huh? Like, and I also think depending on how old you were when you saw it for the first time or saw parts of it for the first time, that also affects like how you remember it as being. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I agree, like, um, well, for one thing also, um, I when I watched this, I watched this on demand, because they had it on AMC for free, and it took me a very long time to realize that because it was on AMC, it was censored. So, <laughs> oh. Hannah, don't you still have a year subscription to Shudder that you bought by accident? <laughs> yes, I do. It, uh, Halloween Shutter? is on Shudder, just so you know. God damn it. Well, it didn't show up. Shudder didn't show up when I, like, Googled where I could watch Halloween. Um... <laughs> Yes, there's a lot of times where I was like, I could have sworn there were some boobs in this. <laughs> That's really funny. Well, I like up until very recently, I remember a couple years ago, like learning that Halloween is actually like a notoriously bloodless slasher. Like there's very little blood in this movie. And I think before I learned that, I always remembered it as being a very gory movie, which it's not. It is quite violent. Like, a lot of people die on screen, but there's very little blood. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was really funny because I watched this earlier in the month. And then maybe a week later, I watched Scream. And obviously in Scream, when they're all at the party, Randy, everyone's watching Halloween. And Randy is sort of explaining the rules of slasher films and things like that. And one of the scenes from Halloween that they show is everyone in the party in Scream is sitting around watching the scene where Bob goes to get a beer and then Michael comes out of the closet and stabs him. And one of the characters in Scream says something like, oh man, like the blood in these old movies looks so fake. It's always way too red. And I was like, oh, there's actually no blood in that scene. Like there isn't any blood when Bob dies. And I felt like I had achieved a new level of horror nerddom to be like, actually Scream screenwriters, there isn't any blood in, like, sorry to the editor, like, I assume Wes Craven knows better, but there actually isn't any blood in that sequence. Actually, Scream nerds. <laughs> it's so like, I seriously, like Wes Craven, don't you know anything about horror? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just pushing my glasses uh, way up my face. 
Um, but I mean, like we would be remiss to not talk about, and obviously we're going to talk about the the main attraction, the woman that we're all here for, Jamie Lee Curtis as Laurie Strode. Um, Wait, one last thing. So, about, one last quick thing about. Oh sex. yeah, go go. Uh, I don't know what they did upstairs, but I just I t- I was curious, so I timed it in the beginning. Judith's boyfriend goes up the stairs and is back down in a minute. Yeah, it's so ridiculous. <laughs> and he's dressed already. Yes. Like he's dressed when he goes upstairs and dressed when he comes downstairs, which means honestly, they had like forty-five seconds tops for penetration, assuming Again, they had teenagers. penetrative sex. They could have like, just dry humped. And I, I, th- I thought like, okay, well maybe they want to, maybe they went upstairs and she said like, no, I don't wanna, and he was like, fine, but he didn't look angry, leave, like he looked satisfied when he left the house. So it's like, what did you, what did you and accomplish? And she's fully nude. Exactly. She's fully nude when he leaves. So something happened. We don't know what happened, but something happened. Well, Annie does yell like half an hour later in the movie, "Hey jerk, speed kills," and someone should tell that to Judith's boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that is a oh, what a burn! What a great. I mean, in this I'm case, so glad it may have saved here. his life though, because if they were still going at it when Michael came upstairs, he might have been a goner too. That's true. Maybe Speed saved him. Um, that's why so, Michael stopped the car because he was like, actually, <laughs> he that's he when pushed he up pushed up his glasses. His glasses up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, all right, guys. So let's talk about Lori. Um, I. I'm on record on this show as being a massive fan of Laurie Strode, so I'll save my opinions for last. Uh, Reed, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you feel, especially knowing now that you sort of started with the Halloween franchise with films that don't feature Laurie, uh, how do you feel about Laurie Strode and about Jamie Lee Curtis's performance? I, I just, I love everything about it. She's so... Like the other two, the other two girls are talented actresses, but Jamie Lee Curtis, she just delivered everything so naturally. Like she felt the most real out of all of them. Like she, mm-hmm. she was the most believable as just a regular teenager who prefers to read books or babysit to save money rather than go out and party. Like just everything about ja- what Jamie Lee did was just perfect. Like everything down to the outfit, the the way she do- she uh, interacted with the kids, like very believable. A hundred percent. I love that you sort of talked about her performance being natural because I absolutely agree that like just from start to finish, I absolutely believe that she's Lori. Like I've seen Jamie Lee Curtis in so many other things. I love and idolize her as a scream queen. But in this movie, she is Lori Strode. And like I don't see any of the other things I've ever seen her play because she just is disappears into this role so much. And that's Um, why she's the A-lister. Exactly. Hannah, what about you? What's your relationship with uh, with Lori? Well, first of all, I resent you saying she's the A-lister as if to suggest that Kyle Richards is not a U.S. <laughs> actress now. Well, she's also Hollywood royalty. Um, That is true. Um, But I agree with you. I think like one thing that you mentioned that I am happy you mentioned is the way that Jamie Lee Curtis interacts with the children is like... Again, going back to being like childcare workers is like very natural and very true. Like it never, it never feels like, I mean, it feels like she's probably like she's had babysitting jobs and like that it wasn't too much of a stretch for her um, in those moments, which is, I think, exactly what you want. Um, and I always, 
love how, because I think watching this movie, I, I have moments where I'm like, where this movie is so good. And then I also have moments where I'm like, wow, we're really spoiled by the horror movies we have now or just that we have so many good ones, especially recently. And then we, you know how it's like part of the culture around horror movies now is to like scream at the screen and yell at the person. And in so many cases, I think when she's hiding in the closet and Michael is like bursting in the closet and she just like covers her eyes and is like crying. I feel like in so many cases, I'd be like yelling at the TV, like run bitch. Or like, (laughs) like, come on, do more. She is so vulnerable in those moments that like, I don't even think about it. I'm just like feeling like a teenager being scared Mm-hmm. Um, and I always find that to be very impressive because I think normally we are exceedingly hard on <laughs> horror movie heroines. Um, so for her, even after all these years, to still, like, when I'm watching her, I'm just like, yep, uh-huh, yep. <laughs> and I <laughs> think, like, she... Testament to her. Yeah, I think, like, she is helped by the fact that the way the character is written, like, before we get to that point, we see her act capably in so many other sequences. Mm -hmm, I mean, there is absolutely a conversation to be had about the fact that um, we are all part of what uh, Ashley C. Ford, who is a writer and one of the hosts of the Lovecraft Country radio podcast, she recently talked about... Uh, our generation and younger as being like the double tap generation. So yeah, uh, Lori's not part of the double tap generation. I think there is a conversation to be had about uh, making sure a fucker is dead before you just like drop the knife and walk away. Twice. But like twice. (laughs) But we see Lori like act so competently and like save herself from Michael over and over and over again. And in some ways it's like, Yes, we understand that he's a horror movie villain, so he's going to keep coming back. But to her, initially, he's just a guy, right? Like, any of the things that she does should save her. And one of the things that um, I just, like, really acutely noticed on this viewing today that is that speaks to this sort of, like, capability that, that uh, Lori has is the sequence when she has escaped the first house and she's gotten back into the Doyle's house and she's gotten the kids to go hide upstairs. And then she realizes the windows open Mm -hmm. and she can hear Michael breathing and she's so scared and she's crying and begging him to please stop. But the whole time she's begging him, she's also like slowly and quietly pulling her knitting needle Mm -hmm. out. And I've always thought like, Oh, she's just like scared and desperate. And watching it this time, I was like, no, she's using her femininity to be like, oh, I'm so weak. Like, please stop. I couldn't possibly fight you to sort of like put him at ease and distract him that she's not like a worthy adversary for him when of course she is because she then immediately stabs him in the face or the neck with the, in the neck with the knitting needle. Oh, I never thought of it that way. Even just that whole sequence when she's like coming into the house and is like, get Lindsay, go go upstairs and lock the door. But I don't want to like, do what I say. Yeah, exactly. The way, like, she's so in it, no hesitation. Like, I I also find that, like, her actions in that scene to, to also just, like, set her apart as, like, a very 
capable uh, horror movie female. Yeah, she does great. And I think, like, um, obviously, we I referenced Scream earlier, and or they talk about the rules of a slasher, right? And how in order to be a final girl and survive a horror movie, you know, Scream didn't come up with these rules, but the, the prevailing idea within pop culture is that you have to be a virgin and you have to be um, super straight edge and you don't drink or do drugs or break the rules. And when Carol Clover talks about um, the final girl, you know, she coined the term in her book, Men, Women, and Chainsaws. And when she talks about it, she's like, you know, final girls are sort of androgynous in their appearance and sometimes have like androgynous sounding names. Um, And John Carpenter has always said that like it was never his intention to suggest that uh, Linda and Annie are dying because they broke the rules by being uh, like by having active sex lives and partying or whatever the idea was never that they were being punished the idea was that like Lori was just more capable and or or maybe more observant and one of the things uh, going back to the birth movies death uh, magazine they had an article about the late deborah hill who again is an absolute legend and they sort of talked about um the fact that part of why halloween has the enduring legacy that it does is because of laurie strode and it's sort of pushing back on this idea that that John Carpenter created this uh, ethos where a final girl has to be like a straight edge virgin. And the article written by Megan Navarro says, Lori doesn't survive because she is a virgin. She survives because of her quiet fearlessness and her power of observation. While Annie and Linda are distracted by typical teenage rebellion and experimentation, Lori pays attention to her surroundings. She is aware and unafraid to step up to danger. Her conscious demeanor is an asset, giving her way giving way to lightning fast uh, action. Lori saves herself repeatedly by the time Dr. Loomis shows up. And so I think like not only does Deborah Hill write and create this character that is just like feels like a person that you might have known in high school, um, but it was also her idea to cast Jamie Lee Curtis, who was A, an amazing, provided an amazing performance, but B, like was the, like Reed acknowledged earlier, was Hollywood royalty, which I think provided more... Um, got more eyes on this movie because people wanted to see what the child of Janet Lee and Tony Curtis was going to do, you know? She is more than the sum of her lady parts. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, I just, like, I can't stress enough. I think I've mentioned this on the podcast already, but I have, like, a full thigh tattoo of Laurie Strode. I I absolutely love Laurie Strode, um, and I love Jamie Lee Curtis, and I love the way... I think that some some movies in this franchise, uh, I'm looking at you. Is it Curse of Michael Myers where she kills herself at the beginning? Resurrection. To, yeah, Resurrection. I'm looking at you, Resurrection. Resurrection does her real dirty. Um, but, like, I appreciate what, what films in this franchise have done. And I actually really liked what they did with her character in H2O and Preach. in the... Uh, 2018 Halloween like I like the idea that Laurie would be an imperfect person who suffered a significant trauma and like did not ever get to heal from it adequately like I just I love everything about 
her character and and the fact that she's played by Jamie Lee Curtis makes it all the better. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm like listening to Sophie like talk about Laurie Strode. I'm just like, yeah. Yeah. Keep, 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 keep going. Keep keep going. Yeah. Tell us the story. <laughs> so guys, now Tell us for how something... Laurie beat Michael. <laughs> now for something decidedly less serious. Um this movie has some really awesome music cues in it so i'm wondering uh if folks have a favorite song in this movie and that can be either music that is played that's like a real licensed song or just stuff that our characters sing to themselves because in some ways those are the the more entertaining songs is it annie who sings that song to herself Wait, no, both uh, her and Lori sing Annie and songs. Lori both sing songs to themselves. But it sounded like they were singing the same song. <laughs> Did it? Because uh, I could sing them both to you now, and I think they're pretty different. Oh, wow, okay. I guess the whole, like, ad-libbing a song just all sounds the same and <laughs> to me. So uh, I don't like to make a habit of singing on podcasts, but Lori's song sounds more like, I just want you all alone, just the two of us. Which I sing to Jeremy all the time, and he finds it very creepy. And the <laughs> and um Annie's song, which might be my favorite song in the movie, is Annie going, "Oh, Paul," <laughs> just like singing over and over again about her boyfriend that she's going to pick up uh, imminently so that they can bone. You know, Lori's song is kind of exactly what she got. Yeah, it definitely is. Unfortunately, Annie did not get what she was hoping for. Uh, it's real sad. I like. I kind of wonder what happened to Paul. Like, he was just waiting for Annie to come and she never showed up. Like, did he get worried or? I'm sure that's not the first time that happened to Paul. Oh. <laughs> um, I also love the... Um, the when Don't Fear the Reaper starts playing when Annie and Lori are driving. That's what I meant to say earlier is like not only is Lori like definitely interested in guys and they talk about it a lot, but like we also see Lori smoke pot in this movie. So like she's not just like a straight edge. But she hated it. Yeah. Or at least she, she looked yeah. like a real noob. A real I mean, slasher yeah, she slut would take that like a pro. Uh, <laughs> listen, she did cough. But I feel like she only got upset when she thought that the sheriff smelled the weed, and then she panicked. And uh, as a real rule follower, I I feel that. <laughs> um, but don't fear the Reaper playing in that scene is so good, where it's just sort of like, again, fate is inevitable, and you should not be afraid of it, because it's coming towards you no matter what. <laughs> Was Mr. Sandman in this at all, or is that just H2O? Um, it, I, is it in, it must be in Halloween 2? Is it in Halloween 2? Because I always think it's in oh, this movie, but it's not. Halloween 2, that sounds right. Okay, yeah. Yeah. I'm um, actually, when I wrote that question about favorite songs, I thought that Sandman was in this movie, and then I got to the end, and I was like, oh, it's not. And I didn't realize it until I was reading the question, and I was like, oh, there's really only, like, one song that's not a made-up song in this movie so this question is kind of bullshit <laughs> so we just wanted to show everybody that she knows all the songs including the ones that are like being made up by characters on the spot <laughs> no i was really not planning to sing those i just panicked that i asked a question that didn't really have a good answer <laughs> all 39 of this 
podcast previous episodes have been a long con. Sophie's been trying to jumpstart her singing career. <laughs> uh, this is going to get me a record deal for sure. <laughs> she's like under under the table after she sang those like two bars. She's like, yes, don't boo it. <laughs> All right, so now for a question that has multiple choices for answers, which will make it a little bit easier. And Hannah, I'm going to call on you first. What is your favorite kill in this movie? Um, that's a good question because, like, my favorite part in the whole movie is when when Michael is in the bed sheet with the glasses over it. And that has always been a dream Halloween costume of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, to just have a bed sheet and then the big old like pedophile glasses on. Top. <laughs> um, actually. And, I, and as I say that I have a very similar pair of glasses on my desk right now. And I'm like, I, this year. Um, I love that. I just love the visual element of that whole sequence um but i'm not sure if that would mean that my favorite kill would be bob's or linda's and then i kind of think my favorite is annie's because hers is so effective so really your favorite kill is all of them is pretty much all of them (laughs) (laughs) i mean i do love the the bedsheet kill and i remember when the new halloween came out and everyone was like, there's some stuff in here where, like, Michael Myers is doing stuff with dead bodies, and he would never do that. And it's like, I don't know. Michael Myers really likes to put on a show. Yeah, he loves like, doing that stuff. Who was saying he, that? Yeah. Everyone, so, like, spoiler for the new Halloween, but everybody was really angry when they find the police officer's head, and it's like a jack-o'-lantern full of lights. And they were like, Michael would never do that. And I was like, that's the one that, like, Michael, there are very few things we know about Michael's personality. One of the very few things we know is that he loves to display a dead body in a terrifying way. So, like, that feels very on brand for me. Um, What about you, Reed? Do you have a, I know Hannah kind of took all of them, but do you have a favorite kill in this movie? Well, before, uh, while Hannah was answering, I was thinking I was going to say uh, Bob's with getting stabbed into the cabinet. But as she was talking about Linda with the ghost and the pedophile glasses, I was like, damn, that is really iconic. Maybe that's my favorite. So I'm going to go with the tie between Bob and Linda. Oh, I mean, so good. I actually shout out to my uh, new friend, Danielle, who we bonded because I have a tattoo of Lori Strode on my leg and on her leg, she has a tattoo like in an old school looking kind of like uh, retro, like cameo design of Michael in the ghost sheet with the glasses oh, on. Soulmates. Yeah, pretty awesome. Um, yeah, I have to say that I want my... to see that. That is so rad. Yeah, I will get a picture of it for you. It's really awesome. Um, honestly, I think my favorite kill in this movie is definitely Bob's. Like for me, it's the one that always, like the jump scare of it still gets me every time um, when Michael comes out of the closet. And I just think like uh, visually it's so stunning. And I know, like I said at the beginning, it's hard to not use the word iconic in this, when you talk about this movie, because so much of this film has become just like these indelible images. And so the image of 
you know, the shot that's just Bob's feet as they kind of go slack when he's hanging is so terrifying. And then, of course, Bob's kill is where we first get Michael's head tilt, um, which is just so iconic. There isn't a different word to use. It's just like such an amazing visual for us to see him Um, again, because we don't know a lot about Michael or his personality, that little head tilt, like, is, allows us to learn something about him, right? Like, we see him kind of be, like, uh, appreciating his work or trying to understand what he's doing. It's just, like, a really eerie, um, action, and that whole scene to me is so creepy. I can't remember if I learned this from watching the movie with, like, a John Carpenter commentary or if it was a behind-the-scenes thing, but fun little tidbit... When Bob is stabbed, the sound effect is them stabbing a watermelon. Whoa. Not Ugh. a pumpkin? I... That seems like a missed opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like a pumpkin might be too dense, though. The thing with a watermelon is the whole inside is so wet. Yeah, you got, the, like you you get that good get that, squish. You get that good gush That's sound. That's the name of the sequel to my <laughs> That good the squish? Good squish. that good squish. Oh, my God. Oh, Lord Almighty. Okay. So now we get into, before we do our, like, final, you know, how many Bloody Marys would you give Halloween? I just am curious if I asked you guys to pick a favorite movie in this franchise that was not this movie, what would you pick? Well, I've only seen this one and the 2018 one. What? You've so, seen Season of the Witch, haven't you? Oh, right. Well, yeah. Sorry. It's like I kind of forget about that one as being part of this. Wow. Hannah, we really need to watch all the Halloween movies together. This is uh, startling <laughs> to me. I guess I always felt like you had to choose, you know? You had to choose what? Like franchises? Yeah, like which franchise you were loyal to. I mean, I don't want to I don't want to shame you, but I have seen every Halloween, Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the 13th. So, nice. I feel like you can have it all. Like Hannah, we're 21st like century women. We can have it all. I say that without shaming me. But... <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm not mad, I'm just disappointed. Read on to you. What would you pick as your favorite in the franchise besides the original? H2O. Oh, such a good movie. Hannah, okay. We're going to we're going to eventually do a series where we have Hannah watch all the Halloween movies and read you're going to come back for all of them so we can talk about uh all of them because Okay, good. That would give man, me an excuse to finally watch 3. You've never seen 3? I still have Here's the thing. I 6 years ago I got the big Halloween box set that Scream Factory came out with. So it has been sitting on my shelf for 6 years and I still haven't watched 3. I just want you to know that the two of you are two of the most important people in my life, and I'm just sitting here <laughs> trying to understand. Your world is unraveling, and you feel like you don't know either of us anymore. Everything is falling apart. Um, Would it destroy you if I told you I actually haven't seen any Nightmare movies past two? You haven't seen Dream Warriors? I heard the that's only the one, best one. It is the best and one. I, Hannah's also never seen Dream Warriors, it, so again... It's also sitting on my shelf. I, I own all of them, and I have not watched it. <laughs> um, over, the, over this past weekend, uh, I went camping, and Hannah was also there, and we were playing... Yeah, I was, was playing a... I was too. I was playing a playlist of, like, um, Halloween-ish music that Bloody Good Horror had put together, and it had the theme 
from Dream Warriors and the theme from Pet Cemetery. And Jeremy was like, why don't they have like awesome theme songs to horror movies anymore? So um, you guys really need to see Dream Warriors if I mean, it's phenomenal top to bottom, but also just the theme song is stellar. Um, my favorite in the franchise after number one, um, I feel like I have two answers because the reality is that I love watching Halloween three. Like I would never say it's my favorite in the franchise because it's not canon. It doesn't have Michael, but like there are very few things to me that are more fun than watching Halloween three with someone who doesn't know what they're getting into. It's just like (laughs) one of the best experiences you can have. Um, But I think if we're staying within canon, I would definitely have to say either Halloween two or H2O. Like I'm with Reed that that, that trilogy before the 2018 movie came out doing like Halloween, Halloween two and H2O was like a, a lovely perfect package and I mean Halloween 2 is hard for me because like we know that John Carpenter didn't really want to do it but like it has some really awesome visuals and some great kills and And then you have H2O exactly and then you have H2O that's like if Halloween and Scream had a baby and so like you can't be mad at that either and it has LL Cool J so you gotta throw Deep Blue Sea in the mix too you know one thing I'll I I do like a lot about uh, Halloween 4 and 5 even though I even, ironically, even though they're the first ones I've seen, I think they're the ones I'm least familiar with now. Mm-hmm. And this has almost nothing. This has like very little to do with the actual movie. But four and five, Haddonfield looked a lot more like the actual Haddonfield with the big Victorian houses. So that's always been something se- I've secretly liked about them. Oh, definitely. And I forget if it's Halloween four or five. I want to say it's five that has like... um it has the like weird clown sound effects whenever the police come on screen. Oh, I don't remember <laughs> Which that. Which is just, it is, it is, because five is the one where Daniel Harris is a mute, correct? Right, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, um, yeah, they, or maybe it's four where it's that sound. Anyway, the, it's either four or five. One of them, every time police officers come onto screen, they play like a slide whistle, like, <laughs> And it is so, it just doesn't fit in the movie at all, but it's quite funny. Speaking of fitting, um, remember how they turned, uh... Neil Harris? What? Never mind. It's Danielle Harris. Okay, never mind. Okay, Reed, what were you going to say? Speaking of, like, fitting, I also humorously like how in Halloween 5, the Myers house, which was this, like, small regular two-story box is now this giant victorian gothic three-story basement quasi mansion and they never acknowledge it yeah they're just like the house is different now it's fine oh fun fact the actual michael myers house is now right across the street from the hardware store from which he stole his mask no way really it had been it originally was like when they went back when they shot it it was around the corner up the block but they moved it and now it is right across the street wow that's very cool uh for listeners of the podcast uh reed lives in la and recently sent me photos that he had gone on a recent pilgrimage to the myers house and the strode house and i just was filled with so much envy that i had to lay down (laughs) oh i didn't know i had that effect on you (laughs) <laughs> Every time I see pictures of someone at the Strode house with a pumpkin, I'm like, one day. 
One day I will do that. Well, I think that brings us to one of the parts of the episode I've been the most looking forward to read on a scale of one to five Bloody Marys. How many Bloody Marys would you give Halloween? I'm not going to make the same mistake I made with the orphanage and trying to downplay it so I don't come off as fanboyish. So straight up five Bloody Marys. <laughs> I love it. What about you, Hannah? Um, I think I would also give it five Bloody Marys. Yeah, I mean, I think we're going to be across the board fives here. This movie, there's just, I agree with Reed. I would love it if we took out the line about ripping Lindsay's clothes off. But totally. uh, there, other than that, there's nothing about this movie that I would change. Like, I just love every second of this movie. Um, and I, not only will I never get sick of it, but like, I take the same amount of joy in watching it every single time. Like, my, my, my enjoyment never diminishes in rewatching it. And it's so nicely paced. Like it's, I, I never once sat, uh, like last night when I put it on, I never thought to myself like, okay, just gotta, just gotta get through this again. Like it's, it's 90 minutes and it's perfectly paced. Like it's so, it moves so quickly that it never feels like a chore to watch. Yeah, absolutely. You're just like along for the ride. It's really lovely. Um, now, are you guys ready for maybe one of the most exciting to me pieces of in lady or news that we've had in a while? <laughs> yeah. Buckle up. Episode 40. Now, this episode of in lady or news is uh, specifically the ladier part is just that this article was written by a woman. The article itself is not gender specific, but it is horror specific and it felt important to share. Um so for the entirety of the time that we've been recording this podcast during COVID, you know, Hannah and I have tried to like find in ladier news that is uplifting. And of course, we've also tried to spend some of our time doing in ladier news to talk about uh, racial injustice and police brutality. Um, and so in light of those things, I wanted uh, to shout out this article from The Pitch, which is, again, the local independent monthly uh, magazine here in Kansas City that also broke the story about the Alamo Draft House in KC. And they have an article that was released yesterday as we record called New Study Suggests Horror Fans Might Be Better Mentally Prepared to Cope with Our New Reality. So it says uh, that in a recent study, so this study had researchers from University of Chicago, Penn State, and Denmark's Our House University. They found that horror fans exhibited greater psychological resilience during the COVID-19 pandemic than non-horror fans. Um, and they, they found that according to the study, the findings suggest that horror fiction in the form of literature, comics, or film gives those who engage with it, with it a scenario that helps them to build up effective emotional coping strategies. And it also talked about the fact that um, horror fiction is often about pro-social, altruistic, self-effacing characters confronting selfish, antisocial evil. So that in a time where we are living in a pandemic and what will save us is doing things that protects ourselves and others, horror films are often encouraging pro-social behavior when faced with a, with a power that is discouraging you um, from doing that. So the article that, that I'll link to in the show notes also talks about the fact um, that horror sort of 
uh, enforces the idea that like there are consequences to our actions and it's important to listen when we hear rules and guidelines like COVID rules and guidelines. <laughs> and also that horror teaches us uh, to validate our gut instinct. Um, it was a really cool article. So I hope that y'all seek it out. Um, they interview two hosts of a really rad horror podcast here in KC, as well as a um, female horror director based out of KC um, that I'm a huge fan of. And they all sort of talk about their own experiences with horror. And then it also talks to several people involved in the study and different psychologists about why people with anxiety and depression might seek horror out and how watching horror might help to make you more psychologically resilient. So um, I hope that with that, we can give you some like good news on this on this Halloween that all the horror that you've been binging all month is helping your brain. That's pretty exciting. I dig it. And that is why at the end of all of this, we will be the last ones left alive. <laughs> I guess what we're trying to say is you're welcome. Like we're <laughs> helping you get through this by making you watch these movies. That's my uh, long con of this podcast is that it's secretly a doomsday preparation project. <laughs> wow, I, I was not prepared for that. And so I'm going to skip right past it and say if you want to follow us on Twitter, we're at... 28 days lady underscore er you can also email us um we are 28 days ladyer at gmail.com reed do you have anything that you would like to plug uh no my life's just kind of a blur in the last six months all right <laughs> well i i might plug for you unless you'd rather that i not that you have a pretty rad uh baking show on youtube that brings me a lot of joy during COVID. Oh, late night baking. Oh, you watch it. Yay. Thank you. Yeah. I, uh, I made your Philly style soft pretzels and they, I have not been home or seen my parents since last Christmas and eating those pretzels was a nigh spiritual experience. So thank you for giving me that recipe. Oh, you're welcome. And I think whoever I stole it from the internet from. <laughs> and, uh, Hannah, where can folks find you on the internet? Well, normally I say like nowhere. Um, but, um, because we were talking about in linear news, um, and it, this coming out on Halloween will mean it's the end of October, um, and the end of, uh, Domestic Violence Awareness Month, but there are new shirts, um, on my shirt website, um, that are going towards a charity to support um, survivors of domestic abuse, the name of which I cannot remember off the top of my head, but it's all on my website and all the information is there and there's a link to the organization in my description of it and everything. Um, but yeah, the shirts will still be available after October, but you know, if you feel so inclined to, as we get closer to the holidays to support some charities and your gifts for family members, hit up bettershirts.org yeah thanks hannah so we'll link to that and late night baking uh in our show notes thank you both so much for being here and hannah do you have any final words for our listeners well um if you're gonna have sex with someone and they are fully covered in a sheet and glasses just double check and make sure it's the right person um 
always pee after sex. Clink! Clink! <laughs> <laughs>